Father, we come this morning and we give our praises to you. We come with thanksgiving in our hearts and with our uh, blessings to you on our lips. We, we come knowing that all good gifts that we have are, have come from your side, from your right hand, and, and we come with all of our requests this morning, with all of our needs, uh, with all of the uh, pain that we hold and, and loved ones that we care for, and we, we place them in front of you in your loving hands. And we ask that your spirit would, would guide them and comfort them and protect them, even as he now comes and speaks to us. And we pray that you would move in our hearts this morning, that you would be with us as we open up the scriptures and as we um, practice um, one of the great um, symbols, one of the great um, religious actions you've given us, Father, this morning in baptism. Um, we pray that your spirit would be powerful here among us. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone. Um, we are starting a new sermon series this morning on the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is a section of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, three chapters where Jesus gives what is probably his most famous teaching, his most famous sermon. Um, and for me personally, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the holy grail of Christian teaching. Um, it's kind of like the epicenter of the, the um, desires that Jesus has for his people. To me, the, the difference between stale and irrelevant Christianity and, and fresh and important and powerful Christianity is found in one's commitment to the teachings of Jesus. For me, one of the ways the church has gotten off track and one of the reasons I'm passionate about preaching and passionate about teaching um, the scriptures is that we have so often, I think, started to worship the idea of Jesus. So kind of this vague idea of love, um, that, that God has love in us, that we um, don't need to feel guilty, we don't need to feel burdened. Um, and it's kind of this disembodied um, idea that we become attached to, and we, we label, we baptize as Christian. And in the scriptures, historically, in, in Christianity, you can't separate out these ideas like love and forgiveness from the person that they come from. And that person is Jesus. Um, and so often, we separate the gospel, the good news of Jesus, from the actual gospels, um, from the person you find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from the things that he said, from the requirements that he put forth, from the teachings that he held. And so I am as thrilled as a person could possibly be to preach the Sermon on the Mount um, if you know me and, and you kind of know my background, you know this has been like years in the making for me. Um, this really is, I think, one of the most important texts um, that we have and one of the most important decisions we can make um, being what is our commitment level going to be to what Jesus embodies, to what he sets in front of us. Will we sit and learn at the Master's feet in the Sermon on the Mount? And so if you have a Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. As we begin this morning, uh, I just extend a... Um, wide invitation for you to join us in a study over these three chapters, over the Sermon on the Mount. They are quickly read in 15, 20 minutes at most, and so I invite you to, to read them this week, to go over them, um, to really dig into them as we walk through them systematically together. You know, every time we start a sermon series, one of the reasons we do this um, is so that we have a chance to kind of live and breathe and dig into the scriptures. Um, that we don't just kind of fly by, look at the things that the Word of God gives to us, but we can kind of sit in it and feel the weight of it. Um, and so this is what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. You get some of the most famous teachings 
um, that Jesus gives us. So the golden rule comes from the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer comes from the Sermon on the Mount. You get also some of the most controversial teachings um, from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And so what most people do throughout the course of history when they come to the Sermon on the Mount is they try to tame it. Um, They take the Sermon on the Mount, and if you just read it out loud to somebody else, it's going to be hard for you to say something that will not offend them. I've done this. I've been asked to preach before. I get asked occasionally. And I've gotten up and I've just read the Sermon on the Mount. But I've kind of like pretended like it was my own. I don't know what the plagiarism rules there are. It's a good sermon, if anything was worth copying. And you can see on people's faces, kind of like, the who does this guy think he is? He's going to say that about divorce. He's going to say that about money. Um, and then there's always that point, you know, usually it's hard to, you know, even if you're not a Christian, people are so steeped in Christianity and our culture that they generally start to get the gist of like, okay, I think this is from the Bible. I think that Jesus, you can see the light bulb start to click in people's head. And uh, there's a test. We call it the Sermon on the Mount test, which is when do you stop nodding? You're with him at the beginning, right? We all love it. But there's a certain passage where you're just like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to think about that. There needs to be an asterisk next to that. There needs to be a rationalization. Um, an Orthodox Jewish scholar once summed up the history of interpretation on the Sermon on the Mount with this statement. And I think it's so accurate. He says, The history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that's shocking, demanding and uncompromising, and render it harmless. And so this is really going to be my only goal for the series. Um, I'm not going to try to impress you with super tricky, um, you know, interpretive moves here. I'm not going to try to um, whip out, you know, hours of historical knowledge and then surprise you. I really just would consider a success if we heard the Sermon on the Mount anew. Because I'll give you my conclusion from the start, which is broadly, I think, when Jesus says something, he means it. And it took me actually years to come to that conclusion to start with that assumption that if he says something before I try to rationalize it or put an asterisk next to it, let me first assume that he means that and that maybe I need to reorient how I'm thinking or what my experiences are or what my assumptions are. And so really my goal as we read every passage of the Sermon on the Mount is to do whatever I need to do to make the Sermon on the Mount undomesticated, to make it shock you, to make it demand something from you, to, to Give it some teeth. And so we'll, we'll pick it up in Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin with a famous section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's hard to, you know, throw a, a pin somewhere in the sermon and not find a pretty famous section. And so we begin with the context of the sermon and the Beatitudes, as they're known, the series of blessings that Jesus gives. We read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, being Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And we can stop there and and kind of set up the context for the sermon. We'll come back to this multiple times throughout the series to kind of regain our footing here. I want you to notice, though, as we get started, just in these first couple sentences, how many times you see the personal pronoun for Jesus? He, him, his, he. This sermon is a Jesus-centered sermon, just like the gospel. This is all about Jesus. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to lay out kind of his broad moral vision, his ethical vision, what he considers to be the responsibilities of one who's a citizen in his kingdom, who's following after him. 
And it's easy to lose sight of the person giving the sermon while we read it. And I think that's actually the cause of some of our failures when we come to reading the Sermon on the Mount, is we forget who's saying it. We forget why it's authoritative in the first place. It's easy, if you take away Jesus out of the equation, to read the Sermon on the Mount and to get the sense that this is just a really heavy rule book. That, that this is just a really guilt-tripping-inducing list of moral demands. Um, it's easy to get the sense that you're either getting an A or you're getting an F, and you've got to kind of earn it. It's also easy to hear things and think, this really isn't meant to be obeyed by me. Maybe Jesus is just trying to illustrate how hard it is to really be a Christian and to really live perfectly, and maybe we just understand now our need for forgiveness. Or maybe this is just for kind of a, a spiritual elite type of Christian, like a Mike Skinner level of Christian. This is the Sermon on the Mount here. The rest of us, though, we're okay with Romans. We're okay with Galatians and Colossians. But I think when we come back continually to the one who is preaching the sermon, we are given new context. Um, for instance, there's a, a passage in the sermon where Jesus will, will say to resist the evildoer. And apart from Jesus, this might seem like, one, an unbearable command, impossible to do, for you to resist um, someone who is, for you to not resist someone who is doing evil against you. Don't resist the evildoer, he says. Um, it might even seem like an immoral command. This is one of the problems that many of us have with some of the nonviolent teachings Jesus has, is it puts us sometimes in sticky situations where we feel like maybe we're doing something wrong, right, by not taking action. But again, these solutions really only make sense when you forget who's giving the command. If it's just a law on a piece of paper, then yeah, that seems really impossible to accomplish. But if it's, if it's the Christ who comes to make all things new, whose spirit infuses you, creating new possibilities of living, then any assumption we had about what's possible or not possible for us or for our communities is taken off the table. We are now in an Easter world where all kinds of living might be possible through the power of Jesus' spirit. And we, when we consider that a command maybe is um, immoral or, or maybe is um, nonsensical, we have to remember that to abandon this command is not just to abandon a rule that doesn't make sense to us. It's to abandon the one who is giving it. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, Mount ends with Jesus giving a very famous parable where he says, all those who hear my word and do it are like wise men, wise women who, who built their house upon a solid foundation. All those who hear it and don't do it are foolish, and when the, the, the storm comes, their foundation, their life is, is washed away. And this is kind of the, the ethical context, the call, the invitation for all the commands and, and ethical visions that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a, do you agree with this, as much as it is, will you do this? Will you go forward with this? Will you trust that this is the wise foundation? That this is the life of the kingdom that Jesus is laying out? There's lots of important things just happening in these first two verses. Jesus um, sees the crowds. He goes up onto a mountain. Um, previously in Matthew, he's been having a successful healing ministry. And it's interesting here now, right? He's got big crowds coming to him in the paragraph um, before. He's healing people. And then he goes up into a mountain, onto a mountain, to teach people. You might think of him going from a very successful, large impact type ministry to 
kind of a more secluded ministry. You might think of it in terms of preventative medicine versus curative medicine. Um, so instead of just reacting to sin, now Jesus is taking the offensive. He's saying, hey, to prevent me from having to come and heal these broken areas in your life, here are ways that we can live. God's vision for humanity, his kingdom vision. You might think of Jesus as inviting people into his ministry. And saying, look, this isn't a solo act anymore. This isn't just me and the crowds healing, but I invite you to listen and to learn and to live out this vision for the kingdom, for you to adopt the, the ministry that I have had. He goes up onto a mountain, and for anyone who is very steeped in the Old Testament, this will probably remind you a lot of a very famous person in the Old Testament who goes up onto a mountain and gives instructions from God. We're thinking of the prophet Moses, one of the most important, most prominent prophets in the Old Testament. Um, we're told he was a friend of God. No one, we're told, that Moses died, as, as he dies, we're told no one really ever had the relationship with God that Moses had. And as you read the narrative, they do kind of talk like best friends. They even kind of like sometimes argue back and forth. Moses can change God's mind. That's a level of relationship that I'm not at yet. Convincing God of, of other things. Moses is there, though. They're, they're, they're pretty close. As far as human beings and God go, Moses is right up there on like the top three call list for, for God. And, and Moses goes up onto a mountain in Exodus 19, and he comes back with the law, the Ten Commandments. And, and law for the Israelites, for, for God's people in the Old Testament, is, is less of what we think as the law in terms of kind of a rule book for society and more of instruction. It's more like a manual for living. You know, the Old Testament um, people, the Israelites, they rejoiced that they had the law. And they didn't do that because they were weird people who liked laws. They did that because they understood it, right? It's God saying, this is where you'll find life. This is how society will flourish. And, and you can just run down the Ten Commandments, right, and see that this is really not that far of a stretch. Communities work better when you don't kill each other. Just people trust each other more. There's generally a sense of joy and contentment in the air. Communities work better when you don't steal people's stuff. Communities work better when you don't sleep with other people's spouses. I mean, I just have, there's lots of evidence, right, that we all might enjoy a world where we follow these, these manuals, where we saw these as kind of like instructions from a wise and loving father given to us as a good gift for us to embrace. So Jesus in, in Matthew has already been portrayed as kind of a new Moses. There's so much in Jesus' life that is similar to Moses' life. You know, when Moses was born, he had to escape a king trying to kill him. Jesus has to do so as well. Um, there's a, a King Herod. He is trying to kill Jesus. He has to flee. Jesus goes into Egypt in the, 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 the um, book of, of Matthew here at the beginning, and now he comes up onto a mountain. He is kind of this new Moses giving God's law, God's instructions, um, now for the kingdom people, for the people who would follow him. And he opens his mouth, and he teaches them. And he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, lots of things we could say about this. A few things I want to point out to you. Again, I'm just trying to get you to read this afresh. Really, these words don't need much explaining. They just need us to kind of take ourselves out of the picture and just read them at face value. Um, notice that these are not recommendations. Jesus, this is the, probably the biggest mistake we make with Beatitudes. Jesus is not saying, these are the things I want from you. He's not saying, you should be poor in spirit. You should mourn. You should be merciful. Not that Jesus doesn't want you to be merciful. This is just not what he's saying right here. Jesus is making statements. He's diagnosing a situation. And if you look at the statements he's making, they are kind of upside-down statements. Jesus is pointing out people in the world who you might not consider blessed. However really you want to define that word, if you take someone who is mourning, who has had some sort of insurmountable grief come into their life and they are in the state of mourning, you might not look at that person and say, wow, hashtag blessed. I want to be that person. If you, if you take someone who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness, imagine that, right? If you're hungry for righteousness, if you're hungry for the world to be ordered in a just way, that probably means what? That you've been getting the brunt of evil in the world. Or at least you're a very empathetic person. And you're very sensitive to some of the injustice in our world. And you feel the weight of the people themselves who are being oppressed. This is not someone we might normally say is blessed. But in Jesus' kingdom, the world is kind of flipped upside down. Um, one scholar says, in Jesus' kingdom, his teachings kind of go through the speed of sound, where everything starts to flow in reverse. The world starts to be altered. Reality starts to look differently. And for Jesus, this is a kingdom announcement. He says, when God shows up, when God is doing what he's promised to do in me, to make all things new, to bring life where there once was death, then all the people who are at the bottom have good news coming to them. I've got good news for you, Jesus says, if you're mourning. Why? Because God has come to wipe away tears. That's why it's good news. If you're not crying, it's not going to really mean that much to you, God's tear-wiping project. It's not that you're a bad person. It's just you're not right, in need of this particular aspect of God's ministry. There's no sense in the Beatitudes that Jesus expects all of his people to embody all of these things. There's no sense in the Beatitudes that he is giving any sort of instructions or requirements for us. In fact, in the original Greek, there's not even that verb there. It's just blessed, poor in spirit, blessed, mourn, blessed, merciful. One scholar says we really should read this as like a, oh, how blessed are. Oh, we can't even imagine how happy, how flourishing this kind of person will be when God's kingdom arrives. And, and as you read the Beatitudes, you see some of them are even in present tense. He says, blessed are the poor, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Not it will be. It, it is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He, he describes kind of a characteristic of a group of people who are marginalized or outcast in culture. And he says they're blessed. And he gives a reason corresponding to um, their situation here in life. Now, just as we notice that the Beatitudes are not recommendations to live a certain way, we should also notice that first and foremost, we need to come back to Jesus. Jesus. 
when we think of these descriptions of people, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the uh, merciful, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we often try to create a human being in our minds who would embody these traits in the world. But we first need to realize that the Beatitudes are talking about Jesus. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Matthew wants to define that by the life of Jesus. What does it mean to mourn? Matthew wants to think about those times Jesus weeps. Matthew wants to think about the time Jesus is crucified. What does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Matthew, Jesus himself, wants you to see this and interpret it through his own life. Jesus, Jesus embodies these characteristics. And as he himself has come to bring the kingdom of God, so these people will be brought and receive and enjoy the kingdom of God. These are a, a list of, of blessings that Jesus has given to his people. We don't speculate on an ideal person that fits each description. We recognize in each description a portrait of Jesus and of the, the kind of life that he has come to um, overcome, that he has come to give life to. We look at the Beatitudes, and some of them are kind of more face value um, than others. This, this word blessed, right, is in all of these, and, and really how we interpret that word blessed um, kind of carries the force of this whole passage for us. Um, we bring with it, as Westerners, lots of baggage. We have a long philosophical tradition of trying to figure out what is the blessed life. In, in philosophical terms, what is the, the good life? What is the happy life? We have all sorts of assumptions about what this might be. There's a biblical context for this, though. The blessed person is someone who is on the right end of God's covenant. In the Old Testament, when Moses gives the law, he gives blessings and curses for those who are part of God's people or those who are outside of God's people, for those who obey the instructions of God and find the life, the blessing there, for those who disobey and find the curse, find death there. And now Jesus gives his blessings, and it's oriented towards him, those who follow him, those who have a kingdom heart and kingdom mind and kingdom life. They are the ones who receive God's um, goodness. You might translate blessed as happy. You might translate it. Um, blessed is kind of an older term, but, but it doesn't carry the weight of baggage that sometimes we associate with happiness when we give it this kind of sense of a fleeting emotion, right? But in a sense of pure joy, that's what this word kind of means in the original languages. Blessed, happy, someone whom God has looked upon and given life to. Someone for whom the world works, has been ordered so that they might enjoy creation. And Jesus diagnoses, he looks out at the world and says, these groups of people, when the kingdom of God comes, they will be the ones that enjoy it. It's good news for them. Now, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in general is not something that is given to us as individuals. It's something given to us as a community. Um, as a community, we might find that while I don't embody all of the characteristics of the Beatitudes, I might embody one or more. I might be a person who has seen their fair share of mourning. 
or I might be a person who has been persecuted for righteousness' sake, or I might be a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And in the community, we find a diversity of these gifted situations. And when we come across commands not to lust and not to um, repay evil with evil and to, to pray and to forgive and to love each other as ourselves, we might realize that we have not been given those commands by ourselves. We've been given those commands as the church. And our legacy in obedience is not solely up to ourselves. It's up to our faithfulness together as God's people. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, with this kind of um, jarring statement of reality. There's really no invitation for you here. I mean, Jesus is really not saying, look, go out and cry. If you're in a good mood, he's not trying to put you in a bad one. He's not even saying, go out and try to be persecuted. He's just calling things like he sees it. And naturally, for some of us, this is a little uncomfortable. We might look and say, well, we're not really mourning. We're not really um, meek, merciful. We're not really persecuted. Maybe these minor irritants that we get as, as Western Christians, but, but not in a, a real physical, existential sense of persecution. You'll see that the Beatitudes are bookend with the same reason given for the blessedness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This kind of gives it a, a, a definition for the entire um, grouping of the, the Beatitudes. All of these people, all of these situations, it's because the kingdom of heaven, Matthew's way of saying the kingdom of God has arrived, that they experiencing blessing. One pastor who I respect a great deal um, in Missouri, actually, has a great accent when he preaches, a very slow, rich, kind of Johnny Cash type tone and, and cadence. And um, he, he put together his own version of the Beatitudes, not his own made-up ideas, but rather he said, if I were trying to say what Jesus is saying, how might I say that? Um, in less first-century Jewish terms, in more Johnny Cash-type terms to, to my congregation. And I found it helpful in terms of trying to just hear these words, right, for the first time. Trying to take all of my baggage and my assumptions about who's blessed in the world, about what the kingdom of God has come to do and overturn in the world away. So I want to read you his um, Beatitudes here. He says this, Blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual, for the kingdom of heaven is well suited for ordinary people. And blessed are the depressed, who mourn and they grieve, for they've created space to encounter comfort from God and from one another. Blessed are the gentle and the trusting. They don't grasp and clutch, for God will personally guarantee their share when heaven comes to earth. Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For them, the government of God will be a dream come true. Blessed are those who give mercy, for they'll get it back when they need it the most. Blessed are those who have a clean window in their soul, for they'll perceive God when and where others cannot. Blessed are the bridge builders in a war-torn world, 
for they are God's children working in the family business. And blessed are those who are mocked and misunderstood for the right reasons. For the kingdom of heaven comes to earth amid such persecution. This morning, I, I simply need to invite you to, to hear the Beatitudes. And after hearing, you might start to think and question and ponder and place yourself inside of them. We, we're told, blessed are the peacemakers. And if we were to really think and analyze this, which we just don't have time to do for all of them, we might realize peacemaking is in itself a very Jesus-type thing. He is the peacemaker, the prince of peace. When we say that Jesus defines the Beatitudes, we see this embodied when we come to this particular one. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We, we might think about what the nature of peacemaking is, what it entails, what it might mean for you and I to be peacemakers, to find this blessing. We might think about the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. I think maybe too often in our world we associate peacemaking and, and the call to be people of peace with really our concept of peacekeeping, which is kind of the, think of the UN as, as peacekeepers. A peacekeeper goes to two groups or two people that are enemies and forms a barrier between them and keeps them away from one another, wielding weapons to do so, able and willing to use those weapons to keep these two enemies from colliding. A peacemaker is a mediator. They're a bridge maker. They don't keep groups away from each other. They bring groups together. And peacemakers are often killed in the process. Just look throughout history. It's easy to be a peacekeeper behind the scope of a rifle. It's much harder to be a peacemaker in between two warring factions who refuse to see each other's point of view, who refuse to acknowledge the humanity of one another. But according to Jesus, it might be that type of person who realizes that they are a son of God, who sees in Jesus the son of God, characteristics that they find themselves experiencing, virtues they have found in their own hearts. And so this morning I invite you to think on and dwell in the Beatitudes. I invite you to begin the study on the Sermon on the Mount with us. I invite you to read through it, to think on it. I invite you to come and sit and listen and learn from the words of our teacher, from the one who has come to give us life, from the one who embodies that life, who promises that life, and who makes sure of his promise. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we give you thanks for your scriptures this morning. I give you thanks as we begin a new teaching series. I pray that you would open up by the power of your spirit the words you have given us through this sermon. I pray that we would um, be a people whose imaginations have been converted by the upside-down kingdom that has been presented to us, that we would um, see and recognize the blessing where you have said it is and called it out um, to be so. We would pray that we would be a people who come to you for instruction, who come to you for life, realizing that, that the forgiveness and love that we have is not a cheap forgiveness and love, and it's not a forgiveness and love that comes outside of obedience, but it's one that's found inside of it. We find the life and the forgiveness that you've had on offer for us when we walk in the commands 
the teachings, the vision for the kingdom that you have given us. I pray that we would be a kingdom people, that we would be a Sermon on the Mount type of people, that we would be a beatitude people. And that like the crowd, we would come and listen to the one sitting down teaching, our Lord and our Savior, the Christ and the Messiah. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that all God's people this morning prayed, saying, Amen.